Crossing over styles and merging sounds has always been a big part of the evolution of music, and few musicians have had the same impact as Ashanti Floyd, better known as the Mad Violinist. Ashanti was born into music. Both his mother and father were accomplished musicians, and they ingrained in him a love for the violin. But it was his experimentation with other genres that set him apart as a musician. His creativity and skill netted him a full scholarship to the Berkeley School of Music after graduating high school. Today, Ashanti is one of the top string arrangers in the music industry and has worked with major artists in all genres, from rap, hip-hop, pop, and more. He's been nominated for six Grammys and continues to help artists grow in the music industry. Today, we welcome the Mad Violinist on this episode of The Big Break. When I was three, my mom put the violin in my hands who taught me how to play. She's been playing for over 50 years. She's had a string school in Tallahassee, Florida for a little over 30 years. So I grew up playing in her string program after school uh, most days in, in elementary and middle school. She's a strong string educator. And when I was in the high schools and the middle schools that I went to were on the south side of Tallahassee. Like we didn't have string programs. All we had was marching band. So I just played. I played the snare drum and the and the bass drum and the cymbals and marching band. I played all percussion. Um, when I was in high school, I arranged the music for the marching band too. You know, um, did a lot of that. When I wasn't doing that, I was in church with my father. Uh, playing the piano. He, my father is a pianist. That's how he and my mother met. You know, they both were in a group together, basically. When they met, my father was going to FAMU and my mom was going to Florida State and he was looking for a violin player and happened to find her. And so I basically grew up into a, a deep musical background. It's something that I ate and breathed growing up. Every day, no matter where or who I was with, either my mother or my father. So you were were you mainly um, you know playing music, uh, just playing the violin as a as a hobby, or was this um, was this something that your parents were kind of reinforcing as like this is a you know you're going to be a violinist when you grow up? It was I was playing it as a hobby. It was a lifestyle, you know, like I said, because it was my mom's life. But at the same time, they didn't say, "Oh, this is what you have to do." I have a twin brother and two siblings, too. We all played, and I'm the only one who ended up taking it professionally. But they gave me options. They gave us all options. We were also a big sports family, too. You know, my parents, I had those parents that made sure we had every opportunity to put us in a position to where we had many th things to choose from. You know what I mean? Sports, music, science, whatever it is. And so it wasn't something that they said I had to do, but they they made sure they put me in situations where I was very encouraged to do it. And I would say the eighth grade was when I um, decided, I told my parents, this is what I want to do. You know, so they put more into it after that. So after I made up my mind, they were like, okay, 
this is what you're going to do. You have to take it seriously. Gotcha. So what did taking it seriously mean for you uh, at that point? Well, then that I told my parents that my mom did things like raise money by cooking dinner. She was a, also a chef on the side. I'd say she did dinner and music parties. She would raise money and she would also reach out to the local newspaper and the lo- local churches for me to go to some of the most prominent summer camps as a, as a violist and a violinist, really as a viola player. And, um, I remember in the the summer of the ninth grade, she sent me to Interlocking Stream Camp. She sent me to London, um, to a place called Cadenza Strings. Um, my my parents just fought hard for me to pursue what I'm doing after I said I wanted to do it. You know, mm. so they basically basically at a young age, you know, they put me in different situations. So what was it like going from, from Tallahassee to these different camps and different places with uh, what I assume to be pretty talented people? Man, it was crazy. It was, it was a crazy experience because I got to size myself up, sort of, say, with mm. considered some of the best young string players and musicians in, in the world. And so that gave me a lot of confidence going back home, knowing that, hey, I got chosen like an interlocking arts camp i was a part of something called the advanced string quartet and that's where over five thousand people auditioned and they chose 16 to study with some of the top quartets in the world you know and out of four hmm. viola players they they've chose me out of those 16 people and four viola players you know to go to camp just from auditioning um turn sending hmm. a cassette tape audition tape and so coming from Tallahassee and being in those positions was really, man, it was a crazy feeling because I realized how much my mom and all my teachers put into me that you can succeed from anywhere, no matter where you, you know, no matter where you're from, just as long as you apply yourself. And I realized that my mom put me in the positions where I was just more advanced than a lot of people. She she made sure I knew a lot of theory before middle school, you know. So she, I realized that all her teachings and wanting me to apply myself with theory and things like that was for a certain reason because she knew wherever I went, I would be ahead. Yeah, so you get to, you get to go to these camps and kind of size yourself up and see um, cause I assume back in Tallahassee, you were, you were just the best cause you had this training for your entire life. It'd be crazy. I didn't realize how inclined I was at a young age. I would say I didn't realize it until I went to middle school when I was in the drum section and I knew what key that everybody was playing in when the teacher, and it's just great. The teacher would ask us, you know, ask all the horn players and the woodwind players to memorize all their keys and their flats and their sharps. And I'm sitting here in the drum section and the teacher's asking all these questions and I know them, you know? Yeah. And so I definitely got that strict training. And at this point, what kind of music are you typically playing? I don't limit myself, man. I'm doing a little bit of everything. I'm working on some country projects. Um, myself, I'm working on a cinematic project. Working on, I've been working on a lot of 
different score, short film scores and things like that. I'm working on something right now for film festivals, like Atlanta Film Festival, like an original piece with a film mm-hmm. crew and things like that. I have my days. It's a, to me, it's about multiple um, streams of income. I have something every day that I focus on. One day I focus on making samples for producers, you know, which I've been doing for a long time. Gotten on a lot of records for that. The next day I'll focus on writing some sheet music because I have a big violin following, you know, from young players that have followed me for over a decade, you know. So um, I'm working on sheet music right now to, to sell that, you know, just really stretching all my abilities. But back in um back in high school and when you're going to these camps, is it um mainly like classical? Oh, music at the camps, all classical music. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So what happened? I mean, after you uh you you're kind of doing this in high school and you're getting practice and you're meeting new people. Um, what happens after that? Well, I started getting into other genres of music. You know. My mom was strict on classical. She teaches classical music, but she's also a pastor and a gospel violinist growing up. And so, and she played a lot of secular music too. And so I would say my mom was a little ahead of her time. A lot of the stuff that I was doing and the things she she taught me, um, she was really teaching me things that would separate me from a lot of people, you know, which is how I Mm -hmm. learned how to move out here through all those teachings and things like that. So you started experimenting yeah, a little? I started experimenting a little bit, and then I started playing a little jazz on the violin, and um, that led me to auditioning for Berkeley College of Music, where I got a full violin scholarship there for, for jazz. I remember my mom driving me to Atlanta to audition for what's called the World Scholarship Tour at Berkeley. Uh, I think the auditions were at a, the AIM, the Institute of Music. I remember auditioning. I played Ain't No Sunshine on the violin by Bill Withers, but I also played a jazz tune by um, Charlie Parker on my violin. And I remember two months later getting mm-hmm. a, le- a letter to have a full ride to Berkeley. And so my life sort of changed then when I had to move from Tallahassee to Boston from the age of 19 after I graduated high school, that was a whole different experience, man. Yeah. Not as much sunshine in Boston in the winters for sure. And that's not, I'm sure wasn't the biggest change. So what, I mean, when you got that letter, did you expect to get that or was that a surprise? To it you? was honestly a surprise to me. You know, I, in the, in the auditions, mm. they were going, the judges weren't holding back a little bit. They were like, man, they were like, they, they were saying things they haven't heard that much soul come from a violin before. And things like that. So it gave me a clue that mm-hmm. the school was going to offer something. But the, mm-hmm. the full scholarship letter was a big surprise. It was a surprise in a, in a lot of ways because you got a, a lot of people don't understand that between me and my three other siblings, I was like the last likely person to get a full scholarship. And not that that I wasn't good or anything like that, but I I wasn't the best student in school. I had my ups and I had my downs. You know, my students, my Mm -hmm. I mean, my my siblings were all straight A students. You know, I had my A's some days, and other days I was just I just wanted to entertain. 
I was just the entertaining one at school. Like mm-hmm. I ended up graduating with a decent GPA, but I knew that my talent did a lot of that. And and somebody you mentioned, I mean, were there a lot of jazz strings players? Because it seems like, you know, jazz, you always think of, you know, the horns or the brass, but not necessarily. A no, violin. there weren't. My mom, um, fortunately, she put me on some jazz string players growing up from back in Joan Luke Ponte, Noel Pointer. There were a couple of before my time, during her time growing up. And my mom, like I said, my mom could play those things. And so I didn't. The, the influence was right in my household. You know, I got a lot of bends and slats from listening to my mom. I still haven't heard a, a, a violinist play a love song like my mom till this day because she's that good. And so that influence, I was blessed to have that in my home. Um, not only her playing the violin, but her putting me on the other violinist. But coming out of high school, going into Berkeley, man, I was really out here alone pushing a lot of boundaries and doing things that other cats weren't doing. You know, what year was that? Like 2002? Mm-hmm. I was out in the streets. At first, a lot I was getting criticized, well, even before I got to Berkeley in high school, I got criticized a lot when I first started the experiment because I was doing bends and wells on my violin, like Jimi Hendrix and things like that. And you can imagine string educators and people looking like, what is he trying to do, you know, and until I finally made it make sense. Mm-hmm. It latched on to this. Everywhere I played, everybody just went crazy. And I just when I started to see that, I started to expand my sound and things like that. Well, initially, did you feel like maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Maybe I should just stick to the basics or not the basics, but stick to the stick to the script kind of. Or were you always like, I'm just going to do my own thing and. You know, forget what everyone else says if it's not what they want to hear. Then yeah, I've always been a person that's always just marched to the tune of my own beat, man. A little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I was fortunate to start the violin, playing the violin at such a young age because I had already played through a lot of things and and seen a lot of things from a young age. I started playing in blues clubs when I was like thirteen. You know. And so anything that anybody could tell me about, oh, you should do it this way and do it that way, I've 10 times out of 10 at a young age, I had already done a lot of things, a lot of the ways that people were saying. What was important to me was playing what was in my soul first, you know, because that's the only way I felt like I was going to continue playing, playing the violin or just doing anything. You know, I liked playing classical and other. Th- I still like to play classical and other genres of music, but it was in a way that I felt like I could identify myself with the voicings, what I was trying to get out musically to other people because I grew up in a, just in a whole different background. Like when I went to school and played classical, the first time on my viola, people looked at me weird. You know, one day I turned on the radio and started playing the, some radio songs, Erica Badu and things like that. And I remember taking it to school and it was just like, wow, everybody went crazy. I played at an assembly at school that got shut down. They went so crazy. <laughs> yeah. And um, I finally, that's, awesome. that's when I learned in high school, like, wow, this right here isn't just a voice, but I'm connecting with 
the people around me that couldn't understand from my neighborhood that couldn't really identify themselves with what I was playing with before. It's like a whole language that I can connect with people who are like me, you know, and from, and from my, mm-hmm. my neighborhood, you know? Yeah. It's powerful that you, that you, you know, found that, that way to, to work it in. What happened to at Berkeley once you got to, you got through there, and uh, I guess you're still at Berkeley now. I guess in the in the story, but what was your experience like there? Well, my experience there was up and down, man. I, um, first, first of all, I, I took an entrance exam, and I tested out of my first two years at, at Berkeley. I skipped all the air training. Hmm. I skipped all the harmony. I mean, I tested out a lot of stuff, and so I started off basically as a junior. Um, like I told you, my mom made sure I learned all this theory. Like my theory from classical music over to jazz was so sharp coming into Berkeley. I was taking tests amongst like drummers and things like that, you know. And so the cl- the classes mm-hmm. there started at a a lower level for people like drummers to understand harmony and things like that, or people who only play single note instruments and not quarter instruments. I fortunately grew up playing blow both and theoretically learning both. So I came in there as a junior. The only thing about Berkeley is the full scholarship didn't include living then, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, living in Boston was really expensive. And so that was costing like on loans, like $10,000 a semester. But I also had a twin brother in college and a big sister in college and a little sister about to go to college. And I saw my parents couldn't handle it anymore, like reaching for the loans and stuff. And so I got out of Berkeley, hmm. you know, and and uh, um, I hit the streets, basically. I started playing in clubs up north. And I remember when I was 19, I made so much noise that I made it on the 106 in Park with Free and AJ, you know. Um, that's where the name, the Mad Violinist, really started. Hmm. Right after not being able to get back in school because I couldn't afford living, um, playing in the streets of Boston and New York, I just happened to make it on TV hmm. on 106 on Park and, and BET. And after that, you know, started doing a lot of things as the Mad Violinist out here in the, in the streets. So I went back home to Tallahassee and I started working with my childhood friend since middle school, probably since before that, but T-Pain. I was going, I was riding over to Payne's house, or Fahim, as I know him, growing up all the time, just going back and forth in beats and things like that. Hmm. And right after Berkeley, um, right after 106 in part, when I moved home because I couldn't afford school, T-Pain just all of a sudden just blows up when I'm sprung, you hmm. know? But I had records that I produced myself with him on the streets. And so when he signed his first deal to Jive Records and put out Rapper Turned Singer, his first album, I landed my first major placement as a producer on that album. Hmm. So you were you you moved back to Tallahassee and you were you were working with him on on just different beats and different songs? Yeah, I mean, we were friends growing up, so we I just go visit sometimes just to listen to his music. You know, we were just we were just a shiny and Fahim from Tallahassee on the streets, man. Mm-hmm. You know, 
we had a close relationship. We were in middle school band together. We were in a drum section together. Um, Payne, uh, his father used to play drums in FAMU's marching band. You know, we were the close, closest of friends. We were each other's competition, <laughs> basically. You know, we were the two guys in Tallahassee making beats growing up. So was that a hard decision for you to, to leave Berkeley and then move back to Tallahassee, or did it just seem like the right thing to do? It seemed like the right thing to do because when I was at Berkeley, I got into a lot of trouble in the music business early because the fact that what I did was so rare, everybody was licking their chops to get me into something. And I was so young, I didn't know any better. All these dollar signs just looked great to me. You know, I was in a rock group up there at Berkeley and we had a lot of a potential, like a lot of rock groups think, you know. We recorded a lot of albums. We were traveling and things like that. And we met these two guys who were ahead of like some big corporate companies within Nassau who said they wanted to manage us. And hmm. I ended up signing the bad contracts. And it was pretty bad. So after hmm. I got off of 106 in Park, all these people started calling, like people that represent Eminem and um, Ludacris and all these people. But the bad part was, I couldn't work with none of those people because I signed a contract while I was at Berkeley with this rock band. So it took my father, when I moved back to Tallahassee, it took him like two years and $7,000 for me to, to get, get me out of this contract with an attorney. And I kid you not, I got it out of that contract a month before Payne's album came out. <laughs> so what was the contract? Was it, did it just, was it like an exclusive, you can't it's, work with anyone except for this? Yeah, except for the band. You know, and and when you signed it, it just seemed like a good good idea, but you know, it didn't turn out to be that way. Yeah, man, I was just a young kid, man from yeah. from top from this small ass Tallahassee, Florida, looking <laughs> right. at a contract with all these dollar signs, and <laughs> we'll put you in these condos in Texas, and you can come out here and all this good shining stuff. And you know, and I and I called my dad, and I called my aunt. I was like, should I sign it? And I was like, it is hesitating. I was. Like, you know, and I signed it right there on the spot, mm. you know, <laughs> my first young lesson. It seems like a lot of, you know, young musicians get to have that same, same story of the dollar signs sound real good. And then it turns out it's not, not to be true. Not to be true at all, you know? Yeah. And that's after a couple of stints with that, that's when I decided to move back to Tallahassee, you know, and I moved back to my parents' house. And I cleared out my room and I turned it into a studio. And what, what did you do in the studio that you built? Man, I was making beats for everybody in Florida. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was making records for people and uh, I was out on the streets. I was making beats for a lot of the artists in T-Pain's old group, the Nappy Heads, you know, and mm -hmm. making music for him and a lot of independent artists. But I just really made a name on my in, for myself in the streets as a beat maker hmm. more than a violinist, you know, everybody knew what I can do. Everybody knew my nickname and that's what made me more special even, even as a producer. Um, mm -hmm. So I came back home and everybody and their mom was pulling up to my parents' house and knocking on my window, you know, hmm. while I was beating the whole neighborhood there. I had car speakers in that room, man. It was so crazy. <laughs> Did, did your parents get a little bit tired of the uh, of the music producing going on after a while, or were they cool with it? Man, I honestly, I don't, I know they got tired sometimes. You know, 
because after a while they're wondering, okay, where is this gonna go? Where why is he in my house? We sent him the vertically, you know, I'm paying to get out of this contract. Yeah, but at the same time they were really supportive. Like my father my yeah. father built all my computers, you know, from from scratch. He would go to Florida State aux- surplus auctions and buy a whole bunch of computers parts and mm-hmm. and just built me a new computer from those parts um, to make music mm-hmm. on. We also get speakers from out of those auctions and help me load up my room so I could produce. I think when it when it turned the corner for my father that he realized that I could really do this was the T-Pain album because not only did I get, you know, get good residuals off of that and get paid from that, but when that first royalty check came in and we opened it, it wasn't a huge amount. I think it was like four grand or something like that, but that's the most money I've seen from a song, period. You know, mm-hmm. and I remember that my father looking at me, he goes, you know what, son, I think you can do this. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties they were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy-to-understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah. You know, and I just, I was laughing in the back of my head, like, man, this is crazy. Yeah, I think I can do this too. But to see, like, my dad's whole attitude change too. That was reassuring for you? Yeah, definitely was because Mm. they finally saw what all those irritating nights in that room banging down the house paid out the beat, you know? Yeah. And so. And when I get when I say yeah, it got crazy, like one day some lady broke my window looking for her son because he was in the house listening to the beats. <laughs> she came up to the window and she broke the glass, and I didn't know what it was. And my my father was we both walked into the living room, and I grabbed a bat and I just ran outside, and then it was this lady looking for her son, and I put the bat down, like oh, you know, so. Me making yeah. beats became like a popular thing, too. Hmm. Moving back home. So what happened after the the T Pain album kind of took off and and he exploded? Did you kind of continue on with him, or or what happened next? Nah, man. One thing about when you have an artist blow up in your hometown, it's a lot of people try to put their hands in one small pot, you know. Hmm. 
and mm-hmm. with, with pain, a lot of people in the neighborhood and a lot of people from the old group, just when you don't have many people in the city blow up like that, everybody feels like you owe them something because you start to get some songs on the radio or some money and things like that, you know, and and I'm pretty sure Payne had to watch his back with a lot of things and things like that. And I saw so much going on that I just took my own way after that, you know, because I started to get stirred up into a, a big pot of hometown noise in a way hmm. that I did, that I felt uncomfortable with. And I was getting myself in the situations um, where I saw the music business young, how, you know, older cats and, and, not everyone's your friend. People can come in and try to snake you too, you know? Hmm. And I'm not saying that with pain. I'm saying with people in the music industry around his situation, everybody trying to find a way, a lot of people trying to find a way to him through the people that work with him, through his friends and not some of the greatest ways. And, and so, um, I sort of went my own way, you know, Hmm. I went my own way completely. Um, uh, the second before I moved to that's when I moved to Atlanta right after the that album came out but before I moved to Atlanta um, in Tallahassee I met the Justice League who moved from Tampa to Tallahassee um, Kenny who was in the Justice League during that time and I we used to play at this um, club together called the Warehouse in Tallahassee at a bebop jazz night not even even knowing who each other was you know Hmm. And um, one day, my friend Jay Mills um, reached out to them when they were looking for a stream player. And the Justice League had a house in Tallahassee. And I went over to that house, and I met them, and I recorded on a song with them called Bust Your Head, Bust Your Head by Young Buck, which ended up being on Young Buck's album. Mm-hmm. I recorded like a hundred-some tracks of strings on that record. Um, so then before I even moved out of Tallahassee, I had a relationship with pain. I had a relationship with the justice league, but I also had a relationship, um, from my work on the streets in Florida with, um, producer Kane beats. I don't know if you know, Kane beats Kane is in the building. They call him. Mm-hmm. So I had a relationship with him. So when I moved to Atlanta, which was an accident, by the way. I sort of had all—I sort of had relationships already from working with the, all these people, you know. Even though I came here with nothing, I came to Atlanta 13 years ago um, with my friend. His name is Adrian Crutchfield. He plays the saxophone. Um, he ended up playing for Anthony Hamilton and Prince and Bette Miller and Lionel Richie. Right now, he's on tour with CeeLo. He's one of my best friends. Uh-huh. He he went to Florida State. He came up here to audition for Neo on the sax, and he needed somebody to ride with him 13 years ago. And I was like, cool, I'll ride with you. And me being a you know just a musician, producer, I'm thinking, okay, I'm coming to Atlanta. I'm not coming here for anything, but I'm just going to pack up all my equipment and take it anyway. Yeah. You know? And so I come in here and I sit in his Neo audition with him while he's playing his sex and things. And we both had a mutual friend that stayed here from Florida State. We were sleeping on her floor here to do the audition. And I was hitting people up 
doing the audition, telling them when I was in town. So I told the Justice League I was in town, and they happened to be working with Young Jeezy um, on the Recession album. Mm-hmm. And they're like, cool, come to the studio. To the studio. So I came to the studio. Jeezy was there. They were all working during that time on that album. And I ended up tracking on two songs on that album, a lot of the strings with them. And I hadn't even moved here, hadn't decided or anything. And so a couple of days after Adrian audition, he was driving back to Tallahassee and he thought I was coming with him. And I was like, hey, man, I don't want to come home. I'm not going back home. Huh. You know? And so I left my home, I left my computer and my equipment and my two pairs of jeans and my busted ass shoes in my friend's apartment. And she let me crash on the floor and Adrian went back to Tallahassee by himself. And I called my parents. I was like, hey guys, I'm not coming back home. I'm staying here till I figure it out, you know? And so I just sleeping on her carpet, playing in clubs around here, like Sugar Hill. I would pop up to, what's the name of that cafe? Um, Two ninety nine. I was just playing all these places, but at the same time making noise. It's the new cat in town, you know. And mm-hmm. when I tell you, like one thing just leads to the next. If you just put your face in the place, um, I was playing at Sugar Hill, and this Asian cat walks up to me, and he goes, "Hey man, my name is Malay. You know, I don't know if you ever heard of producer Malay." Uh, Mm-hmm. And he goes, I'm working on John Legend's album right now, man. I didn't even want to come here to Sugar Hill tonight, but my friend dragged me out here. But I love your violin player. He goes, also goes, I'm also working with this artist named Yellow Wolf. And we want to experiment. We want to do some fiddle stuff on his music, man. Uh, and gave me his number. And I was like, cool. He said, John Legend. I was like, that's enough to get me to drive out somewhere. You know? Yeah. And so the next day, he hit me up, gave me his address, and it's an address to somebody's house, you know? So somebody who who's a freaking legend, I didn't even know at that time. And so I pull up at his house, um, his, KP's house, Kawan Prather um, is his name, well, prominent A&R, one of the biggest in the game. Um, and I, I go to his basement. And Malay's sitting there recording with Yellow Wolf. And that was my first time meeting Yellow Wolf. And we just talked for a little while and we just started vibing out on some of Yellow Wolf's new records. I took my violin out and started fiddling on them. And we made a whole EP after a while. Hmm. Um, Also, within the first week of meeting them, recorded a string arrangement on a John Legend record, too. Um, And so that. That was my start in Atlanta right there from being in the studio with Jeezy to, I mean, being in the studio with KP and Malay. Because mm-hmm. I went on to get my first set of Grammy nominations with KP and Malay too. But also tour with Yellow Wolf, Yellow Wolf Man. Mm-hmm. So were you kind of like a, maybe oddity isn't the word, but like a, something new when you were in the studio and you know, you're in there with like a violin and these guys are just used to, to people coming in and maybe using their computer to do something, but you're in here with a violin. Was that like something that was unusual to them? That was uh, like really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was unusual to a lot of the cats I was working with. Cause by that time I was working with KP Malay, 
the Justice League and Kane Beats to the point where it was like, man, you have a guy here walking to the studio with his backpack, his violin, his viola, cello, laptop, and MIDI keyboard, a string arranger that can play 30 instruments, and a producer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, and not just that, as a producer, I'm an artist too. You know, I've helped being a lot of genres on the violin. And so I, I came into the studio. I'm sitting here playing fiddle stuff for Yellow Wolf, but at the same time, I'm doing string arrangements with John Legend. And then I'm working on this Jamie Foxx record where I'm on the keys playing like R&B music, doing the framework for my life, you know? And so when I moved to Atlanta and started working like that, I realized I had something different. Mm-hmm. I came to Atlanta to be a producer. That was my main goal. But then I realized, man, I can move around um, like crazy being a co-producer. Almost like a ghost producer. <laughs> yeah. For and with other producers. And I've made a I've made most of my living like that. I do that till this day. I make samples and I blow up people's ideas for people, you know? Mm-hmm. Other producers. Right. So when you're when you're tracking the violin, at least back in those days, because this is um like mid two thousands, right? Mm-hmm. So are you in there with a particular idea or are you just laying down, you know, a few dozen different different uh, you know, licks on the violin and, and seeing what works with the record? A, l- a little bit of everything. Mm. I, a lot of times I'll come in there and the record's already done. They just need a string arrangement. So I'll take out my violin, viola, and cello and create a full orchestra. I'm the you know, mm-hmm. growing up playing in orchestras and string arranging and knowing theory, I automatically hear those arrangements in my head, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as I hear the songs. But only thing I'm focused, I'm not focusing on the arrangement. I'm going to focus more on the feel than the technical aspect, because technically I already know what I'm hearing most of the time when people play. It. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so... um me, my thing is just sonically knowing I'm capable of doing what makes sense on any record um, sonically because I know, I mean, because I, I'm capable of doing a lot. So yeah. when I hear something, if it needs a, whether it needs a fiddle arrangement or string arrangements, or I feel like the the synth needs to replay, be replaced with the analog synth because it, might be too heavy or something like that. That's just how my ears are trained. Mm. You know? Yeah. It must have been such a gift for, for you to come in the studio for those producers and be able to do all that stuff because, you know, they have to, I'm sure they have to farm it out to a whole lot of different people, but just to have you come in and, and do it must be, uh, must have been amazing. Yeah, man. It's a, it's, it's crazy working relationship, man. It's, mm. it's one of those things where, you don't believe my flow with a lot of producers unless you, you see it, you mm-hmm. know, because once we get comfortable, I mean, what it takes a lot of people to do, a long time to do, it takes me to do it in a short amount of time. Um, once in the groove with somebody, yeah. you know, and it cuts out. It cuts out a lot when having to put things together for a lot of producers as well having one person that can play a lot of instruments. But at the same time, um, I have a team, you know, I have uh, people around me that are capable of doing dangerous things like myself too, sonically, 
Mm. Like I have a guitar and bass player and a, a guy who collects moves sonically. He records all things analog. He does all those things by himself. Between the both of us, we could probably play like 50, 60 instruments. Mm. You know, his name is Tyler. Tyler records on all the Justice League stuff now and a lot of things like he did a lot of the guitars and simps and basses on all of the Maybach Music 6 and all the other the Rubik's Ross and all his easy stuff and all that stuff that Justice League just came out with me and him are like a, a team so sonically us two now just we can make anything happen mm. on a record that's how we sort of that's how I sort of pitch it to producers but they know that too but at the same time you know, just telling them, hey, don't, when you work with me or you work with anybody on my team, don't come in there with a limited mind on it. Just know you're capable of, we're capable of doing anything that you hear in your head. Hmm. You know? Do you think that uh, reputation kind of precedes you now? Yeah, it, it is more than ever now because that's all I, that's all, that's all I get called for now. Is to basically people call me to shape sounds. Basically, that like I got a call a couple of weeks ago because a Celtic sample couldn't get cleared hmm. for this pop record for an artist, an artist that we know. I can't say, but and so I I just basically told them just to send me the framework without the sample from the producer. And I called my boy Tyler. Man, we played like accordion, piano, violin, guitar. We took away all the producer synths and replayed them analog on some moves. You know, recreated an original Celtic type sample and remade the whole track, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, so they won't have to get it anything clear, but at the same time, have something even better. Right. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I can see how valuable it is to, to a lot of producers. So after you kind of, you know, you met Yellow Wolf and Malay and you guys recorded that one time, like what happened after that? Would you say that was like the real turning point point for you in Atlanta or was there something else that came in the future? Well, that was, I would say that was my beginning turning point. That That's what made me, that really established me as an Atlanta native right there. Really. Like, okay, now I'm doing this as a job here. Now I live here. After about three or four years working with Yellow Wolf, we went our separate ways. Just different directions, you know? We wanted to go different directions, so it was cool. That's when I really took the Mad Violinist series, my name, and got on YouTube and started really doing my thing as an artist. You know, mm-hmm. doing the self promoting. Doing self promoting. I think now I have over thirty million YouTube views or something like that. Because my YouTube channel just at first I was one of the only people really doing it. You know, doing things that people didn't normally see on the violin. Hip hop was had been seen on the violin before, but not with the sweet, the twist that I was doing it. A lot of just even playing the melody. In general, I was up on YouTube, you know, one of the first violinists to take any R&B tune and things like that and play the whole melody of the whole song and turn it into my my own, 
you know? And so my channel was just becoming fuel. I remember bringing in dubstep violin, you know, the, the first, I was the first person on YouTube. I introduced the world to, to dubstep violin. And I remember it was going really, really crazy, getting 50,000 views a day on some videos. And, and um, became this craze that other artists like Lindsey Sterling and all these other people picked up, you know? And those things were coming together, even with the stuff I was doing with producers, because after a while, producers would love it so much, I became I began to have more freedom on records, you know? Let's say, I would say a turning point would be on working on the... Let me see. Right above it, with uh, uh-huh. with Kane. Kane sent me right above it by Lil Wayne and Drake, and I put these heavy string stabs on them that ended up giving right above it like these this really triumphant sound. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people were asking like, "What plug in were those strings?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then then Kane and I dug into that sound some more and created, you know, the show goes on by Lupe Fiasco. And Mm -hmm. that's where Kane and I were so comfortable. Kane, when we worked together, he was also a fan of me, not just as a producer, but as an artist. And so when we worked on tracks, he was always trying to figure out how to sneak me in on some violin line. You know, sometimes Kane would turn on a record in the studio and made me just freestyle, you know. He had this, this song by mm-hmm. Jeezy called "Tell Me It's Showtime." He would always make me freestyle too, just because he wanted to have fun, you know. And I remember um, mm-hmm. doing the show on Zone. I snuck in a violin solo in that song that became very prominent. Like thousands of young violin players got on YouTube when that song came out and just played my line from that song. And from that song, that's how I met Lupe Fiasco. I did a violin improv to that song on YouTube. And I ended up going on tour with Lupe because of that song. And while on tour, we got nominated for like two Grammys for that. You know, and it became his biggest, his top selling hit too. It went number nine on Billboard. Um show goes on and right above it those were like two just huge songs so you know it must have just been been amazing to have that and then the grammy nominations must have been just like the icing on the top what what was that like with the grammy nominations for you did i mean was that like affirmation man it was crazy it was crazy it was something i totally didn't expect man Mm. the the first grammy nominations came on fantasia's album working with kpmla Mm -hmm. her album back to me i did string arrangements on two songs on there those three, those Grammy nominations came, and I was like, "How did this happen?" <laughs> and I'm still homeless as hell. Like, how can you get Grammy nominations and still be homeless as hell? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I wouldn't say homeless as hell. I mean, I was living a little better. I was starting to see those, you know, those union checks and things. I was blessed, you know, but still like fresh in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so. Those Grammy nominations to me was just a little mind blowing. It it definitely made me feel like I can really do this on another level. And mm. Made me turn turn my my hustle up even a lot 
a lot more, you know? Yeah. What did your parents think of those when you got those nominations? Since they were, you know, they were always pushing you and they, they saw the potential from, you know, the time you were three. They were like, wow, you know, they were, they were very happy. They were excited about them. Yeah. You know, I, I know it's a, it's surreal to them um, living in that moment. Mm-hmm. I remember when the show goes on came out, the music video came out during Christmas. I went back home to visit in Tallahassee and I just kept like MTV videos and other things running and the music video just came on, kept coming on while I was home with my pops, you know, and it was just a, it was a crazy thing to witness because yeah. I'm just, you know, just coming home for the holidays and you can just hear my work, just chomp on TV right there. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. So they, they've always been very proud, but I think they have always expected me to do this at a higher level. Hmm. Well, what, what have you been working on recently and, and what's kind of coming up for you? Recently, I've been working a lot with just my friends in the game. Coming together more, like with my friend um, Lil C. Uh, Lil C, within the last, since August, has had about five or seven records come out. You know, and um, my production partner, Tyler, the one I told you about, about uh, Tracks for the Justice League, I made that connection with him and Lil C because I knew it would be a really good relationship. Been on a, a good amount of records. I know they just put out one with Mike Epps and um, Big Boy and Sleepy Brown <clears throat> that they just came out with. But that, that basically what I'm working on right now with all those guys is just creating the next movement, you know, sort of formulating a new team. And I got some things I can't say right now, but some great things happening. Yeah that people will will see really soon. All I can say is that all the hard work and consistency uh, from being a track man and a person that creates samples and produces, is paying off, you know, because people want me around a lot more now. People want to make sure I'm around and I'm creating good records. And so some great things are happening Mm. um, as a result. Yeah. And so you're bringing in some some younger guys and bringing in some older guys and kind of creating this team around you. Well, yeah, a little bit of both. Hmm. And they all everybody, like I said, just friends that have been in the game for a long time that just want to come together and and win, but at the same time, uh, win doing business right, win treating each other right, respecting each other as producers and musicians you know that's that's one of the most important things i feel out there you know that a lot of these musicians out here feel comfortable in the studio with who they're working with because a lot of musicians get overlooked and cheated i feel uh being excited to be on records but so excited that they forget that there's a business aspect of this. And yeah. when those records come out, they're not paid or they feel like they need publishing, but it's too late. You know, or either it's, yeah. it's either it's too late or they have to do a whole lot to get that and get that done, you know, or just need somebody to speak up for them. You know, um, 
right now, uh, having a team to me is important in that aspect too, because I'm building. We're building a team of people that look out for each other as well mm. in the music yeah, industry. Yeah, that's really important. But right now, I'm getting into a situation here. As my friends say I'm accidentally becoming a manager um, for other musicians, you know, because I'm helping so many musicians out right now to the point where I need to go ahead and just start a business. Hmm. Um, because musicians, I feel like even before the producers, the musicians make the world go round. And um, hmm. It's a lot of us out here playing and creating, but few that know the business very well. Especially when you're like me 30 years ago and you just get excited. You come in and you move right to Atlanta and I think I was on like 13 records within like two and a half months. You know, Um, it was that crazy. Yeah. At the same time, I was so young. I learned a lot of lessons the hard way at the same time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you considered though, kind of starting a business and, you know, helping, helping people out that way? Or is that just more of a, an idea right now? I'm considering it now. It's past the idea phase. Mm. I'm in the name finding and paperwork and all that stuff phase right now. I'm definitely in the building, yeah. building phases of that. Um, it's a lot of people <laughs> that tell me I'm DJ Burn One told me I should do it. I mean, a lot of all my musician friends, everybody. And so, uh, cause I've given a lot of people advice on how to handle musicians on their records too. And so, yeah, yeah. That seems like an important thing to, to get done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to just want to make sure that. Everybody out here is is being treated right out because it's a it's a cutthroat business. Yep. Um, and it's it's not made for the weak. I tell you that much. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Hmm. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about uh, um, while we're still uh, while we're still chatting? Uh, not much. Of anything, man. Uh, I I I can say the one piece of advice I want to give before yeah. we close out, man, to anybody. Doing this on the come up, getting those checks, things like that. Make sure you um, you learn about your taxes. Make sure you're paying paying those taxes. Make sure you open your business. You know, all that music money coming in, it's not all yours. <laughs> yeah. You know, make sure you know the percentage that you have to pay the government or you know your way around that you start your business and get you a good uh, accounting, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's another one of those things that, uh, that you, you got to know, but there's no, uh, no one's going to tell it to you until it's too late. No one's going to tell it to you, you know? And yeah. I, I try to tell a lot of young folk that, you know, it caught up uh, some of my wildness in the twenties caught up to me, but not to a point where it's out of control. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. I was able to take care of it, but man, if I didn't take care of it and figure it out when I did, it would be, I know some people that can't live, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And yeah, the tax man comes down hard on you. Yeah. So that's, that's my one piece of advice is to make sure that you know that 
doing this music thing, those taxes aren't coming out of my checks. That you got to pay them shits. Yeah. You know, so that's all. Well, man, it's been great to talk to you and, uh, and hear your story. Oh, man, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can follow Ashanti on Instagram and Twitter, which are linked in the show notes. We'll have a new episode out next week on Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can get that downloaded automatically. You'll be listening to more musician stories every single week. Thanks for listening and have a good one.